Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Conduct. I'm Eileen, and joining me as always is Colleen. How you doing, Colleen? I'm good. We had last week off, and I expertly planned getting sick during my time off from the <laughs> podcast and from work. Uh, but it's good. It's also, it did kind of suck because I ended up having to cancel my holiday plans because I was sick. Uh, but I did get a ton of sleep, so maybe I just needed to crash out for like two days. But um, how are you? Uh, same. I got sick last week, too. So all my Aww. wonderful plans of getting, you know, caught up during our break yeah it didn't happen as much as I wanted but yeah I'm getting better I'm actually better now but I am glad you're getting better and I think we know how I spent my Thanksgiving laid up on my couch with NyQuil watching TV but how was yours I know it sucked that you were laid up I was bummed because we had a prime rib and it was amazing me and Nangi and Mike and Emily we made it and it was just really good so we'll have to make it again for you I'll go to Costco because apparently they're seasonal the, the prime ribs oh. you have to get yeah so maybe i'll get some and freeze it so you can have it another time that sounds really good because i was really jealous when i saw your snapchats <laughs> it was really good but yeah it was a really nice thanksgiving just it was uh, me and emily and mike and Nongi, so it was nice oh that sounds like fun uh thank you guys for bearing with us while we took last week off it was a much needed break and worked out to our advantage because we got sick uh but looking back we realized we release an episode each week since the first week of january 2017 yeah. which is crazy and we will be taking a couple weeks off towards the end of December as well. But after that, we'll be back to our weekly schedule. Now let's get into this week's case. This week, we are discussing Kevin Cooper, an African-American man who was convicted in the quadruple homicide of a white family in Chino Hills, California in 1983. Kevin Cooper was found guilty and sentenced to death for the horrific crime. But after his conviction, many questions were raised about his involvement. On death row since the 80s, many people have spoken out on behalf of Kevin and their belief in his innocence. This week, we will discuss the crime that put him in prison, the evidence that put him there, and what evidence is disputed. Is Kevin Cooper guilty? Or is the state of California keeping an innocent man on death row? The one thing we know for sure about this case is there aren't as many clear-cut answers. No matter what side of the issue you find yourself on, this case is extremely controversial and raises questions about the death penalty in the United States. Douglas and Peggy Ryan were chiropractors living in Chino Hills, California in the early 1980s. They had two children, 10-year-old Jessica and 8-year-old Josh. By all accounts, the family was close-knit and they were happy. Chino Hills is an affluent area on the southwestern border of San Bernardino County. Beyond that is the eastern part of Los Angeles County and the northern border of Orange County. Chino Hills has had a reputation as a good place to raise a family for years. 
It consistently ranks on lists of, you know, best places to live or safest cities in the United States. And the school district is really good. The neighborhoods are safe. And its proximity to Los Angeles makes it a desirable suburb to settle down in. June 4th, 1983 was a Saturday. The school year for the Ryan children would be winding down if it was not already over, and summer would be getting into full swing. The Ryan family attended a barbecue, an annual tradition, at a family friend's home, and while at the barbecue, a friend of Jessica and Josh named Chris was given permission to spend the night at the Ryan house. The Ryans plus Chris left the barbecue and headed home around 9 p.m. A neighbor reported seeing the Ryan car arrive home shortly before 9.30. The next morning on June 5th, Chris's parents were concerned that their son did not come home early in the morning as expected. Repeated calls to the Ryan home were met with a busy signal. At 11.30 a.m., Chris's father, William, went to the Ryan house. He noticed that the truck the family drove to the barbecue the day before was in the driveway, but their station wagon was gone. Knocks on the front door went unanswered. He went around the back to the kitchen and looked inside. The house looked empty and the door was locked. This was unusual for the Ryans and for people in Chino Hills in general who didn't make it a habit to lock their doors. William continued around the house until he reached the sliding glass door that went into the Ryan's master bedroom. It was there he saw the bodies of Douglas and Peggy Ryan and his son Chris. He also saw Josh on the floor, but he appeared to be alive. The sliding glass door was locked as well. William asked Josh if he could open it, but Josh couldn't move. After unsuccessfully trying to break the door down, he went back to the kitchen door and kicked it in to get inside the house. He found the body of 10-year-old Jessica in the hallway outside the master bedroom. After entering the room and seeing that Josh was alive, he asked Josh who had done this. Josh wasn't able to answer as he was in severe shock. When he tried to call 911, he realized the phones in the house didn't work. He had to drive to a neighbor's house, use their phone, and then return to the crime scene. Doug, Peggy, Jessica, and Chris were all pronounced dead on arrival due to multiple stab wounds. Josh was airlifted to a nearby trauma center. I don't want to go into extensive detail of the attacks on the victims, but just, you know, suffice to say it was gruesome and really hard to read about. The victims suffered a combined 144 plus wounds from three different objects, but the bulk of the injuries came from a hatchet. The coroner said that multiple wounds on each of the victims would have been fatal, and the coroner also said that the injuries appeared to happen very quickly and the attack would have been over in just a few minutes. Josh made a substantial recovery, but he had limited memory of the attack, and understandably so because he was only eight years old and it was severely traumatic. His next memory was the next morning when William was asking him to try and open the sliding door. He would go on to be raised at least partially by his maternal grandmother, Mary. In the years after the murders, Mary gave several interviews calling Kevin Cooper's guilt into question, and we'll link one of these videos from an episode of this, like, forensic files or 48 hours type of show on our website so you can check it out. The police immediately descended on the scene. A violent quadruple homicide was all but unheard of in Chino Hills, and nothing seemed to be missing from the home. Peggy's purse and Doug's wallet, both with cash inside, were untouched, and any valuables like jewelry and electronics were also untouched as well. The only thing that seemed to be missing was the Ryan station wagon. I tracked down a New York Times article published a week after the attacks that helped kind of capture what the community was feeling at the time. 
The article describes frightened residents who were stocking up on guns and adding extra security to their homes, and children were no longer allowed to play outside. Families who normally rarely locked their doors were now religiously locking up at all hours, not just at night. Police had named a suspect, but he had not been apprehended yet. On June 11th, seven days after the murder, the Ryan station wagon that William had noted was missing was found in Long Beach. So Long Beach is about 45 miles west of the Ryan's home. In the car, law enforcement found tobacco and cigarette butts on the floor of the front passenger side of the car. The car did not appear to have been hotwired, and it was known that the Ryans would keep the keys inside the car while it was parked at the house. Almost as soon as the attack was made public, police had a name of a suspect and a plea with the public to help them track him down. Two days before the murders, an inmate at the nearby California Institution for Men at Chino had escaped, and his name was Kevin Cooper. Kevin Cooper was 25 years old on June 2nd, 1983, when he escaped from the men's prison in Chino. Now, escaped is kind of a loose term. Kevin Cooper literally walked out of an open gate and walked off the prison grounds. It's crazy. Kevin was in prison in Chino for a burglary charge, and he had actually escaped from a prison in Pennsylvania where he was incarcerated for burglary as well. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. After police realized that he was also wanted in Pennsylvania, it became known that he was a person of interest in the rape and kidnapping of a high school student who came home and startled the burglary that was happening in her house. Charges against Kevin Cooper were filed four days after the murders on June 8, 1983. Kevin walked through four miles of suburban terrain into the neighboring town of Chino Hills. He found an isolated house that seemed empty and started plotting his escape to Mexico. The house he holed up in happened to be directly next door to the Ryan house. Houses in these neighborhoods have more land, usually for horse property, so the houses were actually about 130 yards away from each other. So it's not like how you might picture houses in a suburban neighborhood where they share fences and are maybe, you know, 10 yards apart. He spent two days hiding there. The house was not currently occupied, but people did live there. The utilities were on, and the house was stocked to a degree. He spent his time drinking the beer and smoking the cigarettes in the house while thinking about his next move. While in the house, Kevin called two female friends and informed them of his escape. He asked them for money and to help him get to Mexico, but both women declined to help him. According to his own statement, Kevin made his final call on the evening of Saturday, June 4th. He called a woman in Philadelphia at 7.53 p.m. and the call lasted for 34 minutes. 
After that, he said he put on the clothes he left prison with, which included the blue prison uniform, brown camp jacket, and the prison-issue tennis shoes. He also packed a bag with some clothes that he found in the house and left. This time frame would have him leaving the hideout house shortly before the Ryan family returned home from the barbecue. After leaving the house, Kevin headed south to Tijuana, Mexico. Tijuana is about 125 miles south of Chino Hills, so maybe a three or three and a half hour drive with no traffic. It's also known that he was in Tijuana at minimum by 4 p.m. on the 5th because he checked into a hotel. The next day, Kevin made a call from Tijuana to the women in Philadelphia again. She, again, declined to give him money or help him with his escape. After that, he headed for nearby Ensenada. While in Ensenada, he met an American couple that was vacationing on their sailboat. They ended up offering to take him with them to San Francisco. So Kevin got on the boat and set sail up the coast. He told them his name was Angel Jackson and offered to help to do repairs on the boat in exchange for a ride. They made various stops along the way, but Kevin never went ashore. While docked in Santa Barbara, the local police department received a call about an attempted rape. A woman in the boat next to the one Kevin was staying on reported an attempted rape at Knife Point. When Santa Barbara PD went to question Kevin, he tried to flee. He threw several items into the water and dove off the dock to try to swim away. He was arrested on July 30th, 1983, after being on the run for just shy of two months. While being interrogated, Kevin admitted that he spent time hiding out in the house next to the Ryans, and he also admitted that he was in Chino Men's Prison under a false name after being arrested for a residential burglary. When he decided to leave the house on the night of the 4th, Kevin said his phone call asking for money was denied again, so he decided he would leave to put distance between himself and the prison. He walked back down the hill on foot and tried to hitchhike to Mexico. He said he stopped several drivers and asked for directions to Mexico, and he denied being near the Ryan house at the time of the murders and denied killing them. Kevin's trial was moved from San Bernardino County to San Diego due to media attention surrounding the case. Because the crime was so extensively covered and Chino Hills had a reputation of being this small, close-knit community, the defense felt it would be impossible to select an unbiased jury in San Bernardino County. When San Bernardino County sheriffs announced that Kevin Cooper was a suspect and that he was an African-American man, there was significant racially motivated backlash from the community. A stuffed monkey was left hanging from a noose outside of the courthouse, along with racist signs with slurs calling for Kevin Cooper's death. Due to the high profile status of the murders and the public's response, I think moving the trial out of the area was a good idea. But what do you think? Absolutely. We say this all the time, I know, but everyone, and I mean everyone, is deserving of a fair trial and a vigorous defense. And yeah, clearly having the trial there was not going to give Kevin a fair trial. The trial itself lasted five months and was fairly straightforward. Josh Ryan gave a videotape statement, and he said that before they went to the barbecue, three Mexican men came to their door and asked Doug if he had any work for them. But other than that, no one else came to the house that day. Later, when being questioned at the hospital, he said he remembered seeing one man attacking his mother. We'll get more into his testimony a little later in the episode, though. The prosecution's theory was basically that after Kevin escaped from prison, he hid out in the house next to the Ryans. On June 4th, after failing to get help from friends in his escape, he decided to leave the area. Before he left the area, he broke into the Ryans' home, attacked the occupants, 
stole the family station wagon, and drove it to Long Beach. After that, he hitchhiked to Mexico and met up with the couple who let him sail on their boat back to the United States. They didn't offer a specific motive for the killings, but presented several pieces of evidence that could place Kevin at the scene. Kevin testified in his own defense, which is a controversial move when you're the defendant. He admitted to escaping from the prison in Chino and pled guilty to that charge. He also admitted to staying for two days at the house next to the Ryans. He testified he did not kill anyone. Instead, he hitchhiked to Mexico before the murders even happened. After five days of deliberation and 15 votes, a jury found him guilty of four counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder in the first degree. He was later sentenced to death. Kevin Cooper was scheduled to be executed on February 10, 2004. On February 8, Kevin's petition for clemency was rejected two to one. The judge who dissented managed to push through a ruling that stayed the execution pending further DNA testing. The Supreme Court upheld the stay, basically keeping Kevin on death row, but the execution can't be scheduled until further DNA testing takes place. In 2009, the Supreme Court upheld the Ninth Circuit Court's denial of Kevin Cooper's appeal, so this essentially means that his appeals have run out and, barring a pardon from the governor of California, Kevin will remain on death row. The court was divided on the decision and the dissenting opinion was 103 pages long and co-signed by five judges. Much of the dissent calls into question evidence that could have possibly been manipulated or planted to benefit the prosecution. So we'll link both the concurring and dissenting opinions on our website and they're fascinating to read, but they are very long. So I would be ready to fall down just a rabbit hole. That's a huge time suck. <sighs> Chris's parents and Josh Ryan have spoken out against clemency for Kevin Cooper over the years. Peggy Ryan's mother, who has since passed away, and sister have spoken out in favor of further investigation into Kevin and his possible innocence. We will link some of the articles with statements from both sides on our website so you can check them out. I think it helps to get kind of a sense of where both sides stand. Kevin himself has written several articles while on death row, including a piece that details what his experiences were when he was almost executed in 2004. And we will link that article on the website as well. Next, we'll take you through some of the key pieces of evidence. And this evidence was used to convict Kevin, and some of it has been subject to scrutiny in the years since his conviction. I'll say just now I've read through this stuff several times, and at this point I'm left with just a bunch of questions. <laughs> I don't know what the right answer is necessarily, and some of the evidence manipulation claims I think are fairly damning and others I am less sure of. Kevin Cooper's whereabouts from June 2nd until June 4th are undisputed. He admitted that he escaped the Chino prison and hid out in the house next to the Ryan house. His own testimony puts him in proximity to the crime scene in the hours leading up to the murders. It was well known by those familiar with the Ryan family that they kept their doors unlocked, meaning Kevin could have entered the house. He maintains that he did not leave the neighboring house he was hiding in until the night of the 4th when he left for Mexico. I think the proximity and timing of Kevin and the Ryan's family being near each other is really interesting. There's really no getting around that being suspicious, right? You know, like, However, the first question that pops into my head is, why would Kevin escape from prison just to commit multiple murders? Right. He was calling old friends, asking for them to help him escape. So why would he stop on his way out of town and kill the Ryans and Chris? 
I guess I could understand a situation where maybe he went to rob the house and was startled and killed them, but nothing was missing from the house, not even the cash from Peggy and Doug's wallets. Exactly. I think it's strange that nothing but the car was missing. If he needed money, because clearly he did, he made phone calls for it, I'm sure he would have taken the cash, jewelry, or other valuables at least. So now let's talk about Josh Ryan's testimony. Thankfully, he was not put on the stand to testify during the trial. I think that due to the traumatic events he had already experienced, plus the fact that he didn't remember much, and that he was only 9 or 10 years old during the trial phase, I think testifying in court would have had a negative effect on him. Immediately after the attacks, Josh indicated to law enforcement that there were three attackers and that he believed they were all white. While recovering in the hospital, he saw pictures of Kevin Cooper on TV at least twice during the manhunt, and on one occasion told investigators Kevin was not one of the men responsible. By the time the taped statement was entered into evidence, Josh said that he saw only one man during the attack. He did not identify Kevin as the man he saw during the attack, though. So let's just talk about eyewitness testimony. We've talked about it before in more detail and how it can be unreliable. Furthermore, Josh was eight when it happened and was very seriously injured. And when he was found the next morning, he was in severe shock due to blood loss. I think that that could impair his memory of the events. And I don't know how much stock I put into him not identifying Kevin Cooper as one of the assailants. I do think it's interesting that he did at first say there were three men and then his testimony changed to one man being responsible. Yeah. The free Kevin Cooper website and the dissenting opinion in Kevin's appeal denial claim that Josh's own testimony was manipulated by the prosecution to fit the one killer theory. But at the end of the day, I just don't think his testimony is particularly damning like one way or the other. And I don't know that much weight should be given to it. The pressure and trauma he would have been experiencing during the trial just to have him not positively identify Kevin Cooper makes me question whether or not he should have been put through giving a statement for the trial at all. I am just hesitant to put any sort of pressure or responsibility on this small child who went through just this really horrific experience. God, no. Yeah, I don't think so either. It wasn't damning enough. And yeah, just if you weigh the options, why put the kid through this, you know, again, I just I feel really bad for him, though. Overall, it's awful. Interestingly, the coroner initially said that they believed there were multiple attackers because of the three types of weapons used and the number of victims. Doug and Peggy were said to be in good shape, and Peggy's mother called into question the prosecution's theory that one attacker overpowered everyone in the house. Eventually, the coroner revised their findings and aligned with the prosecution's theory. Subsequent expert testimony for the defense has suggested that at least two attackers would need to be present to control the victims. It should be noted that it is likely that they were surprised and awoke to the attack, so they weren't as alert as if someone had just broken in the house while they were all awake. Also during the investigation, a drop of blood was found in the hallway outside of the master bedroom. It was several feet away from any of the victims, and testing concluded that it did not belong to any of the victims. Testing entered into evidence during trial showed that the drop of blood was consistent with, quote, Kevin Cooper's genetic profile. In the early 1980s, this basically means that based on the genetic markers, the blood was thought to have come from an African-American person. Like I said, you know, this is the mid-80s, and DNA testing is not as exact as we are used to today. 
It also came to light that this was the second time the blood had been tested. The first time the results did not come back as a match to Kevin's DNA profile. The second time the blood was tested, the report showed the blood did match Kevin's profile. So the notes from the lab were altered to reflect that. This is considered suspicious by the defense because of the duplicate testing. The first time the evidence is useless to the prosecution, and the second time the evidence helps the prosecution place Kevin inside the house at the crime scene. Admittedly, I am not very familiar with this DNA profile matching testing thing. I think by today's standards, duplicate testing after the first test ruled someone out would not be above board. However, testing today, like I said before, is much more precise than it was during this time. Yeah, and I'm no expert either, but it just seemed extremely suspect in general that they tested it twice and, you know, ooh, voila, it's a match, you know, look at that. I can see the defense bringing that up as very suspect or even trying to get that thrown out. Mm -hmm. According to his testimony, Kevin smoked cigarettes while in prison and used the Rollwright brand tobacco to roll his own cigarettes. He also said that he rolled and smoked these cigarettes while in the hideout house, and evidence of this loose tobacco and cigarette butts were found in the hideout house. When the Ryan station wagon was found, loose tobacco and cigarette butts were found on the floor of the front passenger side. The loose tobacco was consistent with the Rollwright brand, and this brand is distributed at the prison. Additionally, one of the cigarette butts found in the car was DNA tested and matched to Kevin. This is, in my opinion, probably some of the most damning evidence. However, in the dissenting opinion, the legitimacy of the cigarette butt found in the station wagon is called into question. Apparently, some of the cigarette butts that were found at the hideout house were never processed into evidence, therefore they don't know how many there were. This means, according to the dissenting opinion, that a cigarette butt consumed at the hideout house could have been planted in the car at a later date. The same goes for the loose tobacco. It's very easy to acquire that particular brand and would have been easy to place after the fact as well. I feel like these circumstances make this evidence kind of useless in the court of law, unless you prove either it was definitely planted or definitely not planted, you know? Right, yeah, again, it's really strange to keep things on the skeptical side, another voila moment, look at that, the cigarettes at the house weren't processed, so we don't know how many there were, but look at this, we found cigarette butts with Kevin's DNA on them, that places them as a prime suspect, it's just odd. You know, again, that they found these cigarettes in the car when they needed them, in, in a way. In a bedroom of the hideout house, law enforcement found a green button that matched the button found on the green prison issue camp jackets. On the button, there was type A blood. That type matches both Kevin and Doug Ryan. While this evidence could be concerning for the defense, they presented uncontradicted evidence at trial that Kevin did not have a green camp jacket. When he escaped the prison, he was wearing a brown camp jacket. I think more than anything else, this evidence supports the theory that some of this evidence against Kevin might have been planted by law enforcement. Yeah, it's totally wild, but I absolutely agree. So on to the next piece of evidence. In the refrigerator in the Ryan home, there was a six-pack of Olympia Gold brand beer that had one can missing. A can still inside the fridge, as well as the outside of the fridge on the door, had reddish smudges on them. Outside of the house, in between the Ryan house and the hideout house, there was a mostly empty can of Olympia Gold beer with similar reddish smudges on it. Further tests on the can outside, the cans in the fridge, and the fridge door came back positive as blood. 
The stains were so degraded that they could not conduct further tests, such as, you know, type matching, etc. This evidence is circumstantial at best and was used to try and draw a connection between the two homes, as the outside can was found on the property line between the two houses. I don't know if I think this is potentially planted evidence. I don't think that it really suggests much, though. Kevin could have drank a beer after the murders, getting blood on the cans and the fridge, or some other person could have done that. You know, none of it ties it definitively to Kevin. Right, exactly. There's nothing super damning. There's nothing to test. You know, smudges, like you said, could have come from anyone or, you know, anything, really. Yeah, I mean, like, Kevin could have, you know, committed Mm -hmm. the murders, taken the beer, walked to the property line, or or someone, another person could have done the same thing. Yeah, The day the bodies were discovered, a hatchet that was covered in blood was found on the side of the road. This was later determined to be the murder weapon. The people who owned the hideout home testified that after the murders, they were missing a similar-looking hatchet from their home. The sheath for the hatchet was found in the bedroom of the hideout house that Kevin had slept in, near the green camp jacket button. Here's where it gets interesting. The hatchet sheath and the camp jacket button were found in the hideout house, in the bedroom Kevin slept in, on the floor in plain view. At the time of the murders, this bedroom was mostly empty except for a bed with a headboard. The sheath and the button were not found during the initial search. They were found during a later search after the hatchet was found on the road outside of the homes. San Bernardino Sheriff said that during the first sweep of the house, no one went into the bedroom. That claim was later called into question when a search found that a deputy, who maintained that they never set foot in that room even after the button and sheath were found, basically their fingerprints were found in the closet in that bedroom. So this deputy said that he was never in the room, but then during standard processing of the scene, his fingerprints were found inside of the closet. In the dissenting opinion, this is shown as further proof to suggest that some evidence against Kevin may have been planted by law enforcement. At this point, I'm leaning towards law enforcement planting at least these two pieces of evidence, especially since the camp jacket button is the wrong color and is coming back into play, you know, in this scenario. Yeah, totally. I I find this so similar, you know, to the Stephen Avery case, the double search, law enforcement stating things were done or not done and then finding out they were done or weren't done, finding damning evidence after a, you know, secondary or third search. Again, with the voila, look what we have here, the most damning evidence that we need. So I can see the dissenting opinion for sure. It does seem like they very well could have planted evidence with with this. One of the most critical pieces of evidence used against Kevin at trial was three shoe prints that were found at the Ryan house and the hideout house. One of these shoe prints, and I guess the most, you know, important shoe print, was left in blood on a sheet in the master bedroom of the Ryan home. These prints came from a specific shoe called a Proked Dude, and as far as I could tell, these shoes just kind of look like your standard Ked sneakers. This type of shoe was standard issue at the men's prison in Chino. At trial, prosecutors presented the shoe prints as only possible to have been caused by prison-issue shoes. However, this type of shoe was actually sold in retail stores around the United States. So again, you have evidence that could place Kevin at the scene, but it doesn't go beyond a reasonable doubt. I will say it's a big coincidence that shoe prints that match shoes that Kevin probably left the prison in were found in the house. But why would the prosecution present the shoe prints as only 
belonging to prison issue shoes if that wasn't true, if that makes sense. Because they believe they have their man, so they're going to spin things to sway the jury. It just seems like a weird, maybe they didn't know it was a lie. I don't know. Maybe I'm being too naive about this. But I, why say, you know, these are only prison issue shoes? Oh, actually, these are, they're not like a super popular brand of, well, they're a popular brand of sneaker, but they're not a super popular style in this particular brand. But they sure. are available to buy at retail stores. Could've you know, it's just bizarre. of a mission. You know, they could have just been like, these are prison issued shoes. And they're not going to be like, oh, by the way, they're also sold in another store. Well, no, they you said they I mean? are only available in the prison. Oh, like, okay. These so are prison were... shoes. So Kevin Cooper was here. It was like that. Right. And it's like, oh, and they're not actually. And so I don't know. Kidding. I'm Yeah. I feel like they're probably just doing it because they're going to say whatever they need to say to convict somebody, in my opinion. But I'm, I'm it just seems like a (laughs) I'm jaded. It just (laughs) seems like a weird way to trip themselves up that they could have avoided. But you know who knows? Yeah. There are a couple of instances of bloody clothing involved in the case that are cause for concern. So first, a blue shirt with blood on it was found near the crime scene a few days after the murder. The discovery of the shirt was never disclosed to the defense, and it was never tested to determine if it had any relation to the case. Furthermore, the prosecution didn't turn over the sheriff's logs that noted the discovery of the blue shirt. Another shirt was found at the crime scene that had blood from multiple people on it. Tests showed that blood from Doug, Peggy, and Kevin were present on the tan t-shirt. Kevin maintained that his blood was planted there by the prosecution or investigators. The shirt was not entered into evidence at trial, but it was entered by Kevin in 2004 during an appeal. Kevin's team wanted to elaborate on the blood that was purported to be Kevin's by conducting further tests on the shirt. A test of the blood showed that only Kevin's blood had high levels of a preservative called EDTA in it. This preservative is present in tubes used to store blood. So basically, if only Kevin's sample of blood on the shirt shows the presence of EDTA, that would mean that the blood was placed there probably from a tube that was collected from Kevin sometime during the investigation process. A test to determine if the results showing the levels of the EDTA was valid was requested by the defense. The courts did not allow experts for Kevin's side to participate in the selection of the samples of the shirt to be tested. They also didn't allow independent testing of the sample that the courts chose. And I think this is probably the strangest bit of evidence in this case. I think because it wasn't introduced at trial, it was easier for the state to skirt around turning it over to the defense for further testing. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it needs to be tested. If Kevin's blood is on the shirt and the blood has high levels of EDTA in it, that it needs to be considered in the argument for his innocence or guilt. I see how the judge was able to push through that stay of execution until the DNA testing was conducted. I see how that was able to pass if there's just Mm -hmm. this huge piece of evidence that is untested and could sway the decision one way or the other. Oh, totally. And again, like, I just find this so similar to the Avery case. I mean, that EDTA was brought up there. Uh, But yeah, definitely needs to be tested if EDTA is present, that shows, in my opinion, that blood is not from when the murders happened, but it came later. Right. Okay, so we lied. The strangest <laughs> bit of evidence in this case is actually next. And this is just a summary of a very long story, but the appeal's opinion, you can read more about it. On June 9th, 1983, 
a woman contacted the San Bernardino County Sheriff's to tell them that her boyfriend, a man named Lee Furrows, had come home very late on June 4th and like kind of like June 5th in the early morning in a station wagon that she did not recognize. There were people in this car that she did not recognize as well. When Lee came inside, the overalls he was wearing were covered in blood. He was also missing the tan t-shirt that he had been wearing earlier that day. He changed out of the bloody overalls and left them in the closet of their home. He then got into the station wagon and left. The woman turned the overalls over to the sheriff's department, and she also told them that she was missing a hatchet that resembled the one found at the crime scene. A tan t-shirt was found at the scene, and the woman stated that Lee had been wearing that tan shirt under his overalls the day of the murder. Despite having access to the overalls, investigators never tested them, and the sheriff's department disposed of them before turning them over to the defense. When questioned about this move, the sheriff's department said that they deemed the woman's story not to be credible and did not believe the overalls were of value. Lee Furrow had been released from prison in California earlier that year after turning state's witness against the leader of a gang he was in. He told people that he participated in the murder of a girl in Central California. And finally, if that story isn't weird enough, the Ryan station wagon was found in Long Beach, and at the time, Lee Furrow's stepmom lived in the area. I I honestly don't know what to make of that. I think it's yeah. negligent that this lead was not followed up on Absolutely. and explored. And it's also, we know, it's not uncommon for investigators to have, like, one theory of the crime and then look for evidence that fits that theory. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, even if there is a slight chance this should have been tested, but like you said, they decided on their theory and they, you know, quote-unquote, had their man, so they weren't going to investigate other avenues that would contradict their story. I just find this so horrible, and in my opinion, probably happens quite often. They threw away bloody clothes without testing them, without giving them to the defense and letting them have the chance to test it. It's ridiculous and negligent. And, you know, this man could be put to death at worst or best. He's going to spend the rest of his life in prison because seemingly the police just decided that this wasn't important. And I will say they were questioned about these overalls. Mm -hmm. And the defense was like, hey, we want those. We want to test them. And they said, oh, sorry, we threw them away. Basically, they deemed this not important because they said that the woman who brought the information forward was high at the time or high the day that uh high the day of the murder so they thought that maybe that would impair her memory of everything she was deemed not a credible witness though right but they had bloody physical bloody clothes they could have at least tested right like <laughs> right yeah so yeah i'm just yeah. that was their excuse for throwing oh, for away sure. the overalls yeah excuse being the operative room <laughs> So for final thoughts, uh, just our initial thoughts on this case, it was a doozy. I had it on the schedule for weeks earlier, but I postponed it. It's just like a ton of information to pick through. So we did our best to condense it down and make it easy to understand in the episode. So I hope that it is easy to understand. Oh, yeah. I think that this case raises more questions than answers. There are glaring and obvious issues with the trial that we went into and we could probably talk about for hours. And there's also plenty of evidence that should be tested to remove any possible doubt of guilt or innocence, especially if we're looking at executing someone. I don't think that the racial aspect of this case can be ignored either. Investigators narrowed down on an African-American suspect almost immediately. Murder charges against him were filed four days after the murders, and he hadn't even been apprehended yet. 
This case reminds me of the Clarence Branley case where he was pursued as the only suspect to the exclusion of all others. No other suspects were investigated or taken seriously, and investigators only pursued leads or evidence that made their case against their main suspect stronger, like we saw with the bloody overalls. Cases that have potential prosecutorial misconduct always make me feel for the victims and their loved ones. An overzealous prosecutor can drag out an appeals process and keep dragging those involved with the case back to court for, you know, months or years. In this case, Josh Ryan has had to make several statements in court over the years that would cause him to relive probably, you know, the worst experience of his life. Yeah. And yeah, it totally does remind me of the Brantley case. No other suspects, other evidence was literally thrown out without being tested. And not to mention, I feel like their lab was kind of playing hide the sausage with stuff too, you know? So it's, I don't know, it's crazy. But um, I know I keep saying it. It's also very similar to the Avery case, I feel like, in the sense of, I kind of feel like, well, in a lot of ways, just some of the circumstances, but also it's, I feel like he could have done it. You know, but at the same time, I feel like there is police misconduct. Therefore, even if he did do it, we can't let, you know, the police do that kind of stuff. You know, I'm honestly not sure, though, if he did it. I I really don't know. It was kind of like a roller coaster going through it because part of me was like, yeah, totally. He did it. And then I'm like, oh, wait, no, hell no. We can't let this slide, you know, with the <laughs> law enforcement. And so, yeah, it's crazy. I'm just I'm I'm honestly not sure uh, if Kevin is guilty. Um of killing the Ryan family. But what about you? What do you think? I don't know. I feel like he's either the most unlucky escape prisoner in the world or the dumbest escape prisoner in the world. I don't feel like any of the evidence provided proves that Kevin did not commit the murders. And none of the evidence provided proves that he did commit the murders, if that makes sense. So I say he's either the most unlucky escape prisoner in the world because he happened to hide out in a house next to a house where there was just this horrific mass murder. Or he went through all this trouble of escaping and evading capture just to commit this senseless and extremely violent and horrible crime. So I, I don't know what to think. It also reminds me of the making a murderer Stephen Avery case where I find myself torn about his guilt. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if Stephen didn't kill Teresa Hallback, then who did? But then I find myself grappling with all this possibly planted evidence. And if he is so guilty, why did investigators go out of their way to do what, you know, they allegedly did with the evidence and planting and all of that? Mm -hmm. So basically, I don't know if Kevin is guilty. I don't think that he should be in prison based on how his trial went and looking at all this contested evidence, though. Right. And finally, do I think Kevin should be on death row? Again, probably not. Taking my personal feelings about the death penalty out of this and just looking at it from the point of view that the death penalty is something that we have in the United States... I don't think that the state has proved beyond a reasonable doubt that Kevin committed these murders. Therefore, I don't think he should be on death row. I, you know, I just, I don't think we can put people to death if we have any shred of doubt that they could be innocent. Oh, absolutely agree. There, Yeah, and there's too much doubt. And, you know, we're playing with somebody's life here. And if there is a shred of doubt, like you said, then he should not be on death row for sure. But uh, that wraps us up for this week. But before we go, we have a couple of housekeeping items to get out of the way. First off, we want to say thank you to some of our listeners who took the time to leave us a five-star review. Thank you to Crime Girls Pod, Ross Bathgate, and Hot Mama for your reviews. Leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts really helps the show out. Plus, we love to hear from you. So thank you. We also want to say thank you to our new Patreon supporter. A huge thank you to Wendy for your amazing generosity. You are too kind. 
If you're liking the show or are interested in checking out some of our merch, head over to patreon.com forward slash misconduct podcast to check out some of our stuff. And finally, stay tuned until the end of the episode for a word from our friend over at Death Store Podcast. Death Store is a weekly show that explores a case from death row, and the show exposes the complexities of this area of law through details from each case. And that wraps us up for another episode of Misconduct. Thank you so much for joining us. Head over to our Facebook group to discuss this week's case. If you're not already a member, join and one of our mods will add you ASAP. We love to hear your thoughts and opinions on the cases. Hop on over and let us know what you think. Do you think Kevin is guilty or wrongfully convicted? You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MisconductPod. We want to give a huge shout out to the Blank Tapes for our intro and outro music. Be sure to check them out on Bandcamp to listen to more of their stuff. If you have a case suggestion, let us know about it. You can email us at misconductpodcast at gmail.com and we will see you next week. Welcome to Death Store Podcast, a podcast that explores some of the most haunting cases from America's death row. I'm the host, Dominique Mix, and I hope you'll join me weekly as I explore cases of the innocent and guilty, the executed and the exonerated, all of whom have one thing in common. They all know what it's like to look through the bars of a cell on death row. From the crime to the case's conclusion, I explore evidence, corruption, characters, and, of course, the crime itself. You can find the show on the Acast app, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or the podcast app of your choice. I hope you'll join in, and in the meantime, don't forget to hold your loved ones tight. 